Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Chasing the Moon on PBS. Tune in or stream Monday, July 8th at 9, 8 central, only on PBS. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, June 28th. Today, breaking down the Democrats' first two debates. A Black actor confronts the realities of his role in To Kill a Mockingbird and the new U.S. Poet Laureate. NBC News, Decision 2020, the Democratic Candidates Debate. You know, I grew up... um, with a mother who raised my brother Joaquin and me as a single parent. Uh, I enlisted in the Army National Guard after the Al-Qaeda terror attacks. I see every single day that this economy is not working for average Americans. Necesitamos incluir cada persona en el éxito de esta economía. This was the first time that all the candidates got to be seen together on a national stage to a national audience. I mean, unless you live in Iowa or New Hampshire, you haven't really had a chance to hear these candidates. Amber Phillips analyzes politics for The Fix at The Post. Every single candidate there wanted to do two things. They wanted to attack Joe Biden. He's the leader in the polls, so you get headlines when you attack the leader in the polls. That's how you get noticed. And they wanted voters to imagine them not on the Democratic primary debate stage, but on the debate stage against Donald Trump. There's no consensus within the Democratic Party about how you take on Donald Trump. How do you build a political coalition uh, to defeat Donald Trump? What's the right style and tone on a debate stage with Donald Trump? So... Uh, the candidates really wanted voters to imagine that they were debating Donald Trump and here's how they would do it. So what were your kind of major impressions after watching both nights of the debate? This is an entirely new Democratic Party than the one we had four years ago and certainly more than eight years ago and before that. This is a Democratic Party that wants to go big on government, everything from health care to immigration to family leave and, and women's rights. The bigger, the better. Where they differ is in the details, like like how big is too big. Um, but we're at a remarkable moment in time where there's a Democratic Party and a lot of the major candidates want to get rid of private insurance. Medicare for all solves that problem. And I understand there are a lot of politicians who say, oh, it's just not possible. We just can't do it. It's have a lot of political reasons for this. What they're really telling you is they just won't fight for it. Well, health care is a basic human right, and I will fight for basic human rights. That, four years ago, was like a revolutionary idea championed by one candidate, Bernie Sanders, uh, seen as sort of like something that had a cult following, and he certainly did well in the primaries in 2016 against Hillary Clinton, but not, not like something that the entire Democratic Party was going to be the standard bearer for. Four years of Donald Trump were there. And it was interesting to see that it felt like a lot of the debates kind of focused on staking their claim about how left they were willing to go on things with health insurance, but also with immigration. Exactly. Yeah. Almost every candidate on both debate stages agreed with Julian Castro, a candidate, former Obama cabinet secretary, that they wanted to decriminalize 
migrants coming across the border. The reason that they're separating these little children from their families is that they're using Section 1325 of that act, which criminalizes coming across the border, to incarcerate the, the parents and then separate them. Some of us on this stage have called to end that section, to terminate it. Some, like Congressman O'Rourke, have not. That again, was another thing that's unthinkable even a couple of years ago. This is not something that was being talked about in Democratic policy circles. And now a bunch of candidates were like racing to the left on immigration in a way that concerns Democratic moderates watching this primary debate, that it might allow Republicans to say, you guys want open borders. <laughs> that, that's, of course, an exaggeration of what the Democrats are talking about. But that's the that's the problem here is there's a couple Voices within the lower tier of the Democratic Party saying, wait, 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 going this far left is going to like shoot ourselves in the feet. What are we doing? Anytime we talk about big government programs like this, we're allowing them to call us socialists, whether we embrace that name or not. So you said that a lot of the candidates went into this basically with the goal of trying to take down Joe Biden. How did that play out? Yeah, they exploited openings that Joe Biden himself gave them. The big one was him saying a couple weeks ago at a fundraiser, he was chummy with segregationists in the 70s. That gave an opening to the only African-American candidate on stage, Kamala Harris, to say what she told reporters a couple weeks ago. That that was hurtful because if it were for people like those segregationists that Biden you know, talks about being friendly with, she wouldn't be a United States senator right now. Kamala Harris knew this was going to come up. Uh, there was a moment where Pete Buttigieg was on the defensive about his handling of a fatal police shooting of a black man in his community in South Bend, Indiana. The police force in South Bend is now 6% black in a city that is 26% black. Why has that not improved over your two terms as mayor? Because I couldn't get it done. My community is in anguish right now because of an officer-involved shooting, a black man, Eric Logan, killed by a white officer. And Kamala Harris chimes in and goes, wait, 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 I'm like the only black person on stage right now. I want to talk about race. And immediately pivoted, not to Pete Buttigieg, but to Joe Biden. Um, I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. But I also believe, and it is personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. She had a planned line, but it came across as like forceful and authoritative coming from the perspective of I'm the person of color on stage and, and what you said was hurtful and wrong. You also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. The broader message from Kamala Harris that I think the other Democratic candidates tried to get across but not as successfully was... You're out of touch with the Democratic Party today, Joe Biden. Like, you just don't get it. You don't get our values. And race ended up being the flashpoint where they could make that the most obvious. Mischaracterization my position across the board. I did not praise racist. That is not true. Number one. Number two, if we want to have this campaign litigated on who supports civil rights and whether I did or not, I'm happy to do that. 
I was a public defender. I didn't become a prosecutor. I came out and I left a good law firm to become a public defender. When in fact, when in fact, when in fact my city was in flames because of the, the uh, assassination of Dr. King. So going forward, how does this change things for the state of the democratic field and for what candidates are going to be trying to achieve before the next debate? So the candidates are leapfrogging over each other to be as far left as possible, especially when it comes to big government programs, again, like Medicare for all. The problem with that is not all candidates are Bernie Sanders and willing to embrace the idea of socialism. They have some nuance in in what they support, right? Like a bunch of candidates on stage were like, yeah, raise my hand. I support getting rid of private insurance, but not right now. I think that we should, you know, take some time and have a public buy-in option. The question for these candidates is, can they communicate that nuance effectively in the primary on the campaign trail where we're seeing voters really do want these far left ideas that four years ago were kind of like out of the mainstream of the Democratic Party? Um, it is there room within the Democratic primary for such nuance right now? And some of the leaders in the polls are uncomfortable with the idea of just saying, yeah, I support getting rid of private health insurance for tens of millions of Americans. How, how do people like Joe Biden navigate that? And specifically on Joe Biden, how do these debates change what he needs to do over the next few months as the person leading in the polls and the target of every other candidate? Yeah, I think Joe Biden got a taste of his like new reality during the debates, which is that he does have a target on his back anything he says is going to be try to perceived from the lens of his opponents as out of touch with today's Democratic Party values. It's a possibility that we're going to see Joe Biden just like try to become a completely different candidate because he saw how vulnerable he was on the debate stage to all of these ideas. Amber Phillips writes about politics for The Fix. My name is Benga Kinabe, and uh, I, I make things. Uh, I'm currently doing To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway. Benga plays Tom Robinson, the man whose trial is at the center of To Kill a Mockingbird, the 1960 novel by Harper Lee, the 1962 film starring Gregory Peck, and the new play by Aaron Sorkin, which premiered in New York late last year. Tom Robinson is... A, uh, a young man who lives and works in Alabama, and he has one functioning arm, and he's kind of like a sharecropper for hire, and he works 12 hours a day, and then oftentimes on his way home, he'll stop and volunteer his services to help out Mayela Yule. And so he's accused later on by Mayela of, of rape, which he did not do, but it starts to bring out all the the elements of what the town is really about and what they really believe as far as race and class. So this trial galvanizes this town in a strange way, but also unpeels the layers of what's at the heart of it. 
Benga recently wrote an op-ed for The Post. It's titled, Every Night Racists Kill Me. Then I Leave the Theater for a World of Danger. It's about his experience playing Tom Robinson in this new production, which started out with a year-long workshop and development process. It was important from day one that um, Tom Robinson had more agency than he was depicted as having in the book or the or the film. Well, what does that actually mean when you say more agency? Well, he speaks up for himself more. So he, he speaks about what he wants, his desires, what he doesn't want. Because when the when the play starts, when the book starts, he's already he's accepted a possible plea deal of taking 18 years. And this was pushed on by the attorney he had at the time who doesn't really care, um, who's who's is you know, a racist himself. Um, but Tom's getting the best advice he can. And he eventually he wants to see his kids. He doesn't want to die in the electric chair. So doing 18 years, um, this this choice is not unfamiliar, unfortunately, to people going through the judiciary system. So so doing 18 years or, you know, dying in an electric chair or, or a worse fate. So that's that's where the the whole thing starts. But then Atticus comes and says, "Well, there's another option because I believe you didn't do this." Tom Robinson? Yes, sir. I'm Atticus Finch. Yes, sir. Vernon Hockney told you I was coming? Yes, sir. Did he tell you why? No, not really, sir. I'm a lawyer. I know the facts of your case. If you so choose, I will defend you in open court in front of a jury. Not so much your peers, but still, a group of people to whom a not guilty verdict is available. Excuse me, sir? Yeah, I wasn't able to follow that either. Um, <laughs> I can't tell you how to plead, but I can and I must give you my best advice. You want to be my lawyer now. Tom, very last thing I want in the world be your lawyer right now. Negro man, white teenage girl, I wouldn't be going in with a winning hand. But I'm compelled to defend you as an officer of the court. And in that capacity, I've taken a solemn oath to give you my best counsel, which is that you cannot and you must not plead guilty and go to jail for a crime that you did not, could not commit. If Tom doesn't change his mind, if Tom doesn't actively decide to fight for his life and his freedom, this whole play doesn't happen. This story is, is, is you know, dead on arrival, pun intended. The, and, and, but he does. So he makes what arguably is the most important decision of the play, and that's to 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 fight for his life and his freedom and he has his reasons he wants to be with his family again but in the book and in the film that's more so a decision that comes from from Atticus who who's, who believes Tom is innocent and he's going to like tell Tom this is what we're going to do and and so on but in this play it's a uh, it's something that Tom decides for himself given that there's hope brought into this scenario by Atticus his decision to publicly declare his own innocence Yes. You've talked about how the experience of playing this role night after night is maybe a little bit different from what you expected. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I was so used to the workshop process, the the rehearsing process and 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 no one seeing this but us and just doing it for us and talking about it and intellectualizing it and, and just dissecting it. So when we did get to the stage and, and then actually start to perform it in previews in front of people, I I had a different experience, several different experiences, actually. And now I'm doing this, playing this part, you know, telling this, this black man's story in this white town and looking out to a, a an audience full of, of, of white people, mainly of, of, of some means. And, and all of that started to affect 
my experience of doing this play started to affect my perception of Tom, my perception of myself. Um, because when it was all said and done, when the, 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 the play was over, like I'm, I'm still me and those people out there are still them. And we're in, in this real world together and there's still benefactors of the whole reason we have to tell this story. And I, I can feel that and see that when the show's over and I leave and I'm like, okay, you know, the certain decisions that I have always made as a black man in this country that I need to continue to make in order to make sure I get home. So so that you're the character that you're playing who is fighting for his life and dealing with the injustice of the criminal justice system uh, in in the South is in some ways very that, that you see similarities with your own life where it's like you have to walk home. You have to sometimes deal with police and that that is still a thing that black men in America are are dealing with. Absolutely. Um, it, it, I, it, to my, my own life, but to to. Black people in general in in the United States, it was relative when it was written, and it's relative now because of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people who have read To Kill a Mockingbird will recall that it uses the N word a lot. So does this play? Yes, use the N word a lot. Yeah. What is it like being on stage, having people, having white people use the N word to you and about you in front of a lot of other white people? It was initially very jarring, but starting right off the bat at the uh, at at the workshop to be around, be at a table with mainly white people, and then the N word is flying around like crazy, and I'm like, "What is going on? This is wild!" and and we're not blinking. This this is, uh, and but that's because of the circumstances that we we've all decided to buy into and to tell this story, and so it, it, it's jarring it, at first, and then after a while, it's it's the the town that we're in, it's the the times that we're in. It places us, it, it in a very effective way. Um, to to Harper Lee's credit, to 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 Aaron's credit, you get used to it, and then you, every once in a while, you were yeah. At least for me, I'm like reminded, like whoa, how did I get used to this? And and you've talked about the fact that sometimes people from the audience feel like because they've seen the play and they've seen people use this word over and over and again in front of them that they feel like they can say it to you when they talk to you after the play. Yeah, that was wild. I still think about that. I didn't know these women. They were older and really cool, liberal people who do like a lot of good for folks. A friend of mine, one of them was a friend of his and and told me, look, they're coming to the show. Would you mind if they come backstage? I'm like, no problem. And so we, we spoke. They came backstage. We were speaking. They, the show had really affected them as they, and they really wanted to you know, fight for Tom. They did. They 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 it hurt them to see Tom being treated in such an unjust way. And then and then before I knew it, it's like, yeah. So how the, how did it feel, you know, to, to be called this? And they and they said it, the N word. That like they didn't say the N word; they said the actual word. Yes, yes, they said the actual word, and then I was I was like shocked. And then as I was processing that in the seconds, someone else in that group said it as well in a questioning way, and and then I realized oh this 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 is yeah, this word is being used pretty liberally right now, and I can't say for certain that. It was the play that made them feel that they could use it. But obviously, they had just experienced the play and they saw it happen a lot. So maybe it had an influence. But it was it was it was just all very strange to me. And I don't I don't think they intended to insult or 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 
but it but that you know intentions are one thing and then the actions are another well it it feels like one of the challenges about the story of to kill a mockingbird is that ultimately it's a story about Atticus Finch, right? That he's he's the protagonist both in the book and in the play. And I wonder if you think that like makes people feel more like if you worry that that audience members come away feeling more comfortable, like that there are good white people in the world, that they would be one of those good white people that that they see themselves in that savior arc and maybe don't identify as much with Tom Robinson's story. For the longest time, to, for many people, many Americans, that's been one of the best things about this book. It makes them feel good about who they think they would be in in this scenario. And, that's, and this scenario is the scenario of our of our nation. Um, and, but to me, that's actually one of the most problematic things about the book, and to a lesser extent about the the play. Like Aaron does a great job as much as much as he can to address that that white savior thing from the beginning of the workshop we all we all talked about it very openly this was something that he wanted to try to eliminate as much as possible but i'm not blind to the fact that white people still leave the play you know feeling good about who they think because notice i say who they think they would be in this scenario because when it, it you know certain things come out of people when they're actually under certain situations that they don't necessarily like to identify as being part of them um, themselves so that being said like We've also, I think, complicated the play and the characters, Atticus, more specifically, more so than the, um, he, we have a more complicated Atticus who's more conflicted and, and hopefully uh, a, a lot less or at least a little less of a white savior figure than the book or the movie. So where people would normally leave feeling good about who they think they would be in that scenario, in the play we talk about doing trying to do the right thing is the right thing. And some people that's so, and some people like, no, that's not so. Doing the right thing is the right thing. And and so just having these discussions after leaving the play, I don't think people necessarily had the same discussions after reading the book or seeing the movie. They just felt good about who they thought they would be. I don't know if this will be a spoiler for people who haven't read the book or, or seen the play, but it feels like to Kill a Mockingbird has been around for so long that it probably shouldn't be a surprise to people that that Tom Robinson, at the end of the story, he dies, right? Like he tries to escape from jail and in the process he is shot and killed. And that, I think, really resonates with a lot of what we see in the world today. And I, for you just having to act that out every night, is that... Is that traumatizing? Like, is it is it really hard to do? Well, the the death doesn't happen on stage, but it, I, I am fully aware that I die eight times a week doing this show. And I will say that there's a cost. I, mean, I love doing this show. It's been one of the greatest experiences of my life. And I feel lucky to be able to continue to do it. But knowing the fate of this character, of this Black man, who's not too unlike me and, and, and a lot of people I know, there's also a cost there. It's funny because like, I've spoken to a few people after the show who I don't know how or or how it came to be, but they weren't aware of how the play was going to end. And they'd say to me, it's like, wow, I, I thought you were going to get off in the end. I was oh. like, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, sir. Do you, say, you don't even have to know. You don't have to know this story to know that like in this scenario, in any scenario that is like this, 
the guy doesn't get off at the end. Yeah, I was like, but it, I, I was like, I was encouraged that our the way we told the story, like, you know, gave this person he bought into the hope and bought into like the the possibility. But yeah, I guess maybe he forgot what what town and what era, what all this, all the facts are against this guy um, um, as far as circumstances. But he, but it's 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 great that he, I love that this that sometimes people. Like get to have that journey of completely unaware of the of the ending. Does doing this play make you think twice about taking on other roles in the future that involve depicting black pain? Yeah, I'm not interested in being the guy who does you know black pain all the time, and or or the guy you go to if you want to see you know. Um, you see a black man suffer well, go get Benga. No, I I want to I want to tell stories that have a full range and, and show you know different characters living different experiences. I I love doing this, but I wouldn't mind being the first you know black Batman. Uh, so <laughs> it's, it's it's like you know Warner Brothers, you hear me? Anyway, so the so it's it, it's it's I. It does. I am conscious of the projects I choose because I I believe I believe that America. America, America's porn is black pain, and it's like America, like it, it, it gets off on it. It needs it. it. There's a, there's a certain relief to it, a climax to it when, when we see, when we see and reward black pain. It fits what we understand of black people, and, and when we see things that don't fit that, it's jarring. And when, unless it's forced down our throats, we, we, we don't accept it as a reality of what, what a black person can be or a black person's experience. So I, I'm very cautious as to how and when I tell the story of black pain, which needs to be told and shown and reminded to this country. Um, but I'm, 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 I am particular with how I choose to add to that story. Benga Akinabe, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Benga Akinabe plays Tom Robinson in To Kill a Mockingbird, which is now playing at the Schubert Theater on Broadway. You can read his op-ed at postreports.com. The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Chasing the Moon on PBS. The epic story of the moon landing. This is the most audacious undertaking that man has ever attempted. It's as if you were there when it happened. I understood what it meant to smell fear. Experience the making of history. The computer was overloading. It was touch and go. Like you never have before. Everybody felt they had a piece of it, and they did. Chasing the Moon on American Experience. Premieres Monday, July 8th at 9, 8 central, only on PBS. And now, one more thing from Joy Harjo. She was just named the first Native American Poet Laureate of the United States. It's about all of us, because for so, so often we are not at the table of discussion or even presence. You, we are, we're usually not mentioned or we're not visible. We, are, we tend to be invisible in this country, even though we're right next to you and we're poets and we're teachers and homemakers and actors and all kinds of, we're, we're here, we're still here. 
You don't separate what you are and what you do from your art. It becomes an inherent part of it naturally. So yes, the philosophy of what it means to be a Muscogee Creek person and all the mythological and real stories and human stories and songs, it's all in there. Yes, it's written in English, and sometimes I, I write particularly songs in the language, but it's wound through, so you can't really separate it out so much sometimes. It's just part of who I am. Okay, this poem is from um, Conflict Resolution for Holy Beings, meaning that we're all holy beings and we're certainly in a time of conflict. And uh, so this poem is included there, and it's called This Morning I Pray for My Enemies. And whom do I call my enemy? An enemy must be worthy of engagement. I turn in the direction of the sun and keep walking. It's the heart that asks the question, not my furious mind. The heart is the smaller cousin of the sun. It sees and knows everything. It hears the gnashing even as it hears the blessing. The door to the mind should only open from the heart. An enemy who gets in risks the danger of becoming a friend. With writing poetry, you're always trying to get beyond words. And when poems work, they express what's beyond words. And uh, that's probably where we all need to get, is this place beyond words, where we can hear and understand and know, you know, what the heart, you know, what the heart is saying of this country. Joy Harjo is the 23rd Poet Laureate of the United States. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you want to know how to support the work that we do here at Post Reports, please consider subscribing to The Washington Post. We're offering listeners a special discount on a digital subscription. Get unlimited access to our website and apps for less than a dollar a week. Sign up at postreports.com offer. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Dio, Rena Flores, Lena Muhammad, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who composes original music for the show. Special thanks this week to our intern, Renny Svernovsky. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 